CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Wednesday, November 29th, 2023. Professor John Mearsheimer of the University of Chicago joins us now for his regular weekly appearance on the show. Uh, Professor Mearsheimer, always a pleasure, my dear friend. Thanks for coming back and sharing your thoughts with us. Glad to be here. So uh, since we were Thank you. Since we were together uh, last, the there has been somewhat of a ceasefire or a truce. If there's a significant difference in the, in the terminology, uh, I'll ask you to uh, elaborate. But whatever it was, it appears as though hostilities between the Israelis and Hamas have stopped for a while, uh, while people on both sides have been released. Um, Russia Today, RT, is reporting that uh, the Israelis... Um, who released 39 uh, Palestinian people that they had arrested, arrested another 133 during the truce. Did the negotiators forget that the Israelis have a tendency to do this in the West Bank and that this would essentially be fruitless as a, as a, uh, a compliance with their obligations under the truce? Well, it's very hard to say, you know, what Hamas was thinking in this regard. Uh, One could argue that Hamas thought there was a good chance that would happen, but they went along with the uh, truce anyway, or the temporary ceasefire anyway, because they needed uh, to get uh, supplies into Gaza and they needed time to sort of reconstitute the fighting forces. So you could make that argument, although we don't know for sure. I would add, however, that when the Israelis do something like this, it makes it unlikely that you'll have further uh, uh, exchanges of prisoners and hostages. And uh, it just doesn't make much sense. I mean, I don't understand if the Israelis are doing this, why they would do it. When, uh, first of all, is there a difference in, in international parlance between a truce and a ceasefire? Or can we use those uh, terms interchangeably? Well, I think that a truce is something that's much more uh, short term and a ceasefire is seen as something that's more long term. But you could talk about a temporary ceasefire uh, and that would equal a truce. I don't think the language matters here at all. Uh, The key point is the Israelis made it clear that this truce was only going to last for a short period of time. And once it was over with, which appears to be tomorrow, Thursday, they're going to unleash the dogs. So do these truces have a, ten, have a tendency 
to take on a life of their own because of the sort of good feeling that they generate on both sides. The uh, spokesperson for the foreign ministry of Qatar has been candid in saying that his bosses are working on something far longer, or that's their hope, far more serious and far more restraining uh, than just two or three days to uh, exchange a few dozen uh, hostages. Well, I think in Qatar, in the United States, in Western Europe, in Egypt, in Jordan, all of these countries are deeply interested in making this truce become a real ceasefire. I think all these countries would like to shut this one down. I would imagine that Hamas feels the same way. Uh, the problem is that the Israelis don't feel that way. The Israelis are fully aware that they have not come close to completing the job. In other words, defeating Hamas and making Gaza uh, terror-free in their rhetoric. And <coughs> excuse me, they feel that they have to go back on the offensive uh, to, in effect, win this war. So I think the Israelis have no interest in seeing uh, this truce uh, become a genuine ceasefire that lasts for a long time. So what do the what have the sides been doing? Uh, in the past 72 hours, uh, regrouping, getting uh, advantageous positions, restocking ammunition and getting ready to fight again? Well, I think in the case of uh, the Palestinians and not just Hamas, they've been getting supplies uh, into Gaza that have helped uh, the average Palestinian survive. Uh, I mean, they were in really desperate straits. They're probably still in desperate straits, but in less desperate straits today than they were at the start of the ceasefire. So I think a lot of that was taking place. One does wonder how much of that aid, uh, especially the gas that came into uh, Gaza, was cleaved off by Hamas and helped them improve their situation. I would imagine that both Hamas and Israel took this truce as an opportunity to sort of rationalize their defenses uh, and to prepare for the next stage. And my guess would be that Hamas benefited more than Israel did uh, from this truce. Um, let's go back to what happened on October 7th. You and I have uh, read some uh, investigative pieces uh, one in the Telegram and one in uh, the Financial Times. The one in the Financial Times uh, reports that about a half dozen female tank operators in the IDF uh, saw a suspicious uh, drone activity on the Gaza side of the Israeli-Gaza border on October 6th and reported it, and their superiors discounted what they said. But the Telegram piece reports a uh, substantial amount of activity and practice and, and arming that had been going on for almost a year, actual practicing of um, assaulting buildings and practicing of uh, taking uh, hostages. If the Telegram piece is accurate, and if the Financial Times piece is accurate, what does that tell you about Prime Minister Netanyahu's uh, government? with respect to intelligence, military, and security? Well, the piece I saw was not in the Telegram. It's probably the same piece you saw, but it was in BBC. And it talked about the preparations that Hamas made 
for launching the offensive on October 7. And the piece is truly amazing because Hamas prepared over the course of three years for the October 7th offensive. They did it out in the open. They filmed their training exercises, which were very realistic. They posted those training exercises on the internet. And you just sort of say to yourself, how did the Israelis miss this so badly? And then, of course, there is the Financial Times piece, which you mentioned about all of these women who were basically spotters or who were the eyes of the IDF up close to the Gaza-Israel border, who could observe what was going on inside Gaza. And given what I read in the BBC piece, it's hardly surprising that these young women saw all sorts of preparations for an offensive uh, coming from Gaza in the immediate future. And they, of course, these young women, reported that to higher headquarters. And it was dismissed by higher headquarters. They wouldn't listen to these uh, spotters or the eyes of the IDF uh, who were seeing what Hamas was making perfectly obvious. So you really sort of scratch your head and say, how did the Israelis miss this one so badly now that we see these stories coming out? Well, that I mean, that's the $64,000 question. How did they miss it uh, this badly? I mean, add to that the likelihood that Mossad has assets on the ground, not necessarily Israelis on the ground, but double agents, uh, either people in Hamas or, or residents of Gaza who are on the payroll or have some allegiance to uh, Israel. There are, of course, Gazans who prior to October 7th worked in Israel and were paid for their work in Israel. They don't anymore. Uh, but my point is, how do they miss this? What did Bibi know? When did he know it? Will we ever know the answers to these questions, Professor Mearsheimer? Well, just to embellish your point, the uh, piece uh, on the uh, BBC website makes clear that Hamas was one of 11 groups inside of Gaza that participated in this event on October 7th. It's very important to understand that. There were 11 separate yes. groups. And yes, that's it. that is in the piece. Who are the other 10? Not by name, but, but by characteristic. Well, they were very similar to Hamas. They had just, you know, either split off from Hamas or had been... Uh, uh, created uh, in addition to Hamas. The most famous of the other 10 is Islamic Jihad, which is the second largest group. Hamas is clearly the biggest group. And it's clear from the article that Hamas was basically in charge of training all 11 groups for the attack uh, on October 7th. But to get to your question, I think that when the war uh, comes to a halt. When the shooting stops, uh, the Israelis will set up a commission to examine what happened. And then we'll get a really detailed discussion or description of how the Israelis got caught with their pants down. Uh, after reading the BBC piece and the Financial Times piece talking about these young women and what they were seeing and reporting to higher headquarters, it really is kind of amazing that the Israelis were so completely surprised. I mean, is this is just an act of uh, misogynistic pre prejudice? What could these 20-year-old girls know? Or is it just a, uh, uh, an incompetent, an incredible lack of professionalism 
that what they saw with their own eyes was not taken seriously by their superiors. Well, it can be for those reasons or other reasons. It could be that, and I think that this is highly likely, that the Israelis just had a great deal of contempt for the Palestinians. They thought the Palestinians were surely capable of some sort of military attack uh, into Israel and out of the Gaza Strip. But I don't think they thought that the uh, Hamas uh, forces and the other forces were capable of doing uh, what they did on October 7th. I think they were really surprised. And there's evidence that Hamas itself was surprised uh, by how successful they were. So I think the Israelis just dismissed the threat, just didn't think it was that serious. They could easily handle it. Let's say that the uh, truce ends uh, tomorrow. What what will the IDF do? Will it go, get back in the into the business of attempting to eliminate all life as it is known in Gaza? Well, I think the Israelis uh, are almost certainly. I mean, I hope I'm wrong here, but they're almost certainly going to start the bombing campaign again. And my sense is that the Americans have been putting enormous pressure on them behind closed doors uh, to limit the scope uh, of the offensive. Uh, what that means is very hard to say. You want to remember there are a huge number of people packed in southern Gaza because the Israelis ran lots of Gazans out of northern Gaza into southern Gaza. So they're going to have their hands full, the Israelis, uh, coming up with a bombing campaign that is uh, one that spares large numbers of civilians. Uh, the problem that the Israelis have is that they really don't want to go after Hamas, because to go after Hamas, you have to use ground forces and you have to engage in face-to-face -face fighting. You have to go into the tunnels. You have to go into buildings. Uh, and the Israelis are remarkably sensitive to casualties. You want to remember, the Israelis and uh, Hamas have had three previous engagements uh, that were quite significant in scope. One was in 2008, 2009. The second was in 2014. And the third was in 2021. In none of those instances did the IDF go into Gaza or into urban areas in any meaningful way. And the reason is the Israelis fully understand that they would pay an enormous price and it would take one heck of a long time to finish off Hamas if they could even do that, right? So here you have a situation where they have two choices. They can bomb or they can send their ground forces into tunnels and into buildings and root out Hamas. Unsurprisingly, they have done very little uh, of... Uh, the uh, latter, and they have done a lot of bombing. And so I think that what they'll do is they'll bomb. And this is going to cause huge problems for them, because I don't think Joe Biden and a lot of Democrats uh, are going to tolerate that for long. Mm. How could they morally assault southern Gaza after they forced people and encourage them by all their leaflets to leave northern Gaza and go down there. It's almost like shooting fish in a barrel if they do that. Or is my question absurd because there is no morality here. There are no moral standards. 
Well, I wouldn't say your question is absurd, but I think that you gave the answer. You can't make a moral case for this. Look, what the Israelis have done is they basically turned Gaza into a free fire zone. You and I oh. are old enough to remember the Vietnam War. Right. right. And we would turn certain areas of Vietnam into free fire zones. And anything that moved in those zones uh, was liable or likely to be killed. And in a very important way, that's what the Israelis have been doing in Gaza. Uh, they've been going after hospitals. They've been going after ambulances. They've been going after UN institutions. They've been going after schools. And they, of course, justify this because they argue that Hamas fights from those places. Right. Hamas is everywhere. And if you buy that argument, then you can make the case that you should just destroy the whole place. Treat it like a free fight. Is that, is that the end game? to destroy Gaza and slaughter two million human beings? Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Well, I don't think they're going to slaughter two million human beings. Uh, I, I, my view is that what the Israelis wanted to do in an ideal world was ethnically cleanse Gaza. And in the very beginning, it looked like they may get away with that because it looked like the United States was playing along. But what's happened since then is that not only the United States, but various Arab countries and the Palestinians themselves have made it unequivocally clear that this is not happening. We're not having a second Nakba. The Palestinians are not going to be cleansed in Gaza. So the question is, what's the fallback position? And there are two things you can do. And this is what I was alluding to before. One is you can punish the civilian population. You can bomb the civilian population and inflict massive punishment on them. Uh, and you can go after Hamas and root out Hamas and finish it off. My argument is the Israelis are not going to do the latter. They're not going to go after Hamas in any meaningful way. They're not going to defeat Hamas. And therefore, they're forced to bomb. Well, but what is their goal then if they're not going to defeat Hamas. I mean, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said that's their goal. This uh, crazy security minister, uh, Ben Gavir, has said that that's their goal. They have no winning goal. That's the problem. The Israelis are in deep trouble, and we're in deep trouble as well. There's no, there's no magic formula here. And by the way, we haven't even talked about what you do in Gaza after the war is over with. Let's say they go in and deliver a hammer blow to Hamas. Hamas is basically crippled to the point where it can't cause much trouble for a good year or two. Let's say that happens. I'm wrong. Right. 
Right. Then the question is, what are you going to do to make Gaza work? Uh, and, you know, people talk about, let's bring in the international community. Nobody in the international community wants any part of that. The Americans don't want to go in there. And really, do the Israelis want to stay there and run the place? I doubt it. Uh, we talk about bringing Mahmoud Abbas in. He, of course, is on the West Bank. And right. Mahmoud Abbas has zero credibility among the Palestinian population. He's an ancient. He's in his late 80s. The idea that he's the solution uh, is laughable, right? So what are the Israelis going to do once this is over with? I certainly don't have a good answer. And I have talked to a good number of people and asked them this very question. And I've not found anybody, including Israeli supporters, uh, who have a good answer. What is Joe Biden going to do, Professor Mearsheimer? What has this done to his presidency, to the dilemma that he's gotten himself in between Oh, we're wedded at the hip with uh, Israel. Oh, we're in favor of the two-state solution. Oh, we're not in favor of uh, slaughtering innocents. How can he get out of this? That's a very interesting question. I mean, th there's no doubt that Joe Biden is feeling the heat from inside his administration, from inside the White House, inside the State Department, inside USAID, uh, people in his administration are profoundly upset about the killing of Palestinian civilians, and they're putting pressure on him to do something about it. He also understands this has huge consequences for his election next November, because in swing states like Michigan, you have large Arab American communities, and if they're positively hostile toward you, you're likely to lose that swing state and maybe others. So what's happening here is that Biden is, has a growing incentive to crack down on the Israelis. But the problem that he faces is that uh, there will be huge resistance if he does that from the Israel lobby, which is another way of saying Israel's staunchest supporters in the United States. They, not surprisingly, want President Biden to support Israel no matter what. And if he doesn't do that, they will make him pay a price. So Biden is in a situation where whether he goes left or he goes right, he's in trouble. And uh, I don't see a simple way out for him. How does uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu come out of this? How could he possibly come out of this as a, a winner when he's going to be the subject of the most intense interrogation that the Israeli government has ever, con has ever conducted? What did he know and when did he know it? Well, first of all, he's largely responsible for what happened on October 7th. You know, Harry Truman's very famous statement that the buck stops here. Well, right. the prime minister of Israel, the buck stops at your desk. He so, has yet to acknowledge that. He has yet to take responsibility for that. Of course, and, and he won't. Uh, but <laughs> the fact is, lots of people in his society, right, believe that he is responsible. He was in charge. That's right. one. Point two is the question of how this war plays itself out. If you accept my basic argument, which I think is correct, that he's not going to win. He's not going to defeat Hamas. You remember, he has said, as you pointed out, that I'm going to defeat Hamas or the IDF is going to defeat Hamas. If right. he doesn't do that, right, then he's going to be in double trouble. And I yesterday, yesterday he said, quote, 
I alone can defeat Hamas. Well, Professor Mearsheimer, he can't do anything alone. Can the IDF win any battle without U.S. support? Well, U.S. support, I mean, obviously he can't win it alone. In fact, he sounds like Donald Trump when he's talking like that. Uh, but it's the question here is whether the IDF can do it. And my point to you is I don't think the IDF can do it. Uh, and I don't think American support matters very much because what we're talking about here to defeat Hamas is basically sending ground forces into the tunnels, ground forces into the heart of the cities in Gaza and rooting out Hamas. And for the Israelis to do that, they're going to have to pay an enormous blood price. And it's very important to understand that Israel is remarkably sensitive to casualties. So I think they will be reluctant to go in and try and root Hamas out. Furthermore, as I've argued on the show before, I think if they try to root out Hamas, they're not going to succeed. And by the way, going back to our discussion of that BBC article or Telegram article, the fact is that it's not only Hamas they have to deal with. According to that article, there are these other groups, including Islamic Jihad, that they have to deal with. Uh, are, so are American and British special forces on the ground in Gaza now? I don't know for a fact. Uh, it, it, it's just very hard to say. I would imagine that if there are American and British forces, they're very small in number and they're playing an advisory role. Uh, I don't think the Israelis need us to do their dirty work for them. I think they can, you know, handle the matter of uh, or the problem of rooting out uh, Hamas if they decide to do that. Uh, I think the Israelis need us for the bombing campaign. Uh, and, you know, we've supplied them with uh, those 2,000 and 1,000-pound bombs, and uh, we're providing, up to now, diplomatic cover for them as well. Uh, but uh, in terms of the ground campaign, I, I don't think it really matters very much uh, in, in terms of whether we have uh, special forces in there or not. What will it take for Joe Biden to call up uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and say, enough is enough, we can't back you anymore, you're killing too many innocents? Well, first of all, it depends exactly what the Israelis do starting tomorrow when they uh, relaunch the campaign. If it's a rather selective air assault, uh, they're not killing nearly as many civilians uh, as they killed previously in northern Gaza. Uh, the pressure on Biden might not be too great. But uh, if the Israelis really go full bore and they start to tear Gaza apart, I, I believe the pressure will be enormous. And my sense is that the, uh, the recent truce or temporary ceasefire, if anything, gave a lot of the doubters uh, an opportunity to make their views clear to the Biden administration. And my sense is that Biden now fully understands uh, that down below in the United States, there is a growing uh, opposition uh, to what the Israelis are doing uh, in Gaza. And of course, why do we have why do we have naval ships uh, offshore uh, in the uh, eastern Mediterranean, Professor Mearsheimer? Well, my sense is that that's always been to send a clear signal to Hezbollah and, and to Iran not to escalate. The United States lives in mortal fear of this war escalating. 
And in fact, the defense minister, Yoav Gallant in Israel, is really gung-ho about pounding Lebanon. He'd like to expand mm. the war. And the Americans have told him, and they've told Netanyahu in no uncertain terms, that that is simply unacceptable. Uh, so we do not want the war to spread. Uh, if you're interested in ethnically cleansing the Palestinians, you can make a case for expanding the war. So I don't find it surprising at all that some Israelis like Gallant uh, want to expand the war. Uh, but the Americans don't want that. And we have forces over there uh, for purposes of deterrence. How would the U.S. prevent Defense Minister Gallant and the IDF from expanding the war? Would Joe Biden actually turn off the spigot of cash and military equipment that flows to Israel? I don't know. That you know, talk about sixty-four thousand dollar questions. That is a sixty-four thousand dollar question. Uh, you know, the the question the question you have to ask yourself is whether you believe there are any limits to what Israel can do that will cause us to play hardball with them. Uh, you know, I've written on the Israel lobby, and I think when it comes to Israeli-Palestinian issues, uh, it's hard to imagine anything that Israel does causing us to really come down on them like a ton of bricks. Uh, but one has to understand that somewhere out there, there is a threshold. And if the Israelis do something that really damages the American national interest in a visible way, or really hurts uh, President Biden's re-election chances, he may very well crack down on Israel. But you want to understand that that will have political costs. I mean, the problem that Biden faces is that there are political costs if he continues to support Israel's bombing campaign, huge political costs, it looks like. Right. And it also looks like there are huge political costs if he cracks down on Israel because the lobby uh, will go after him. Um, I just wonder if the loss of enthusiasm on the West for support for Ukraine uh, has been caused in, in some significant measure by this Israeli-Gaza conflagration. Well, you want to remember that before October 7th, uh, support for Ukraine was waning in a serious way. Uh, and uh, I think it's quite clear that what's happening in the Middle East uh, has caused us to have even less interest in prolonging the Ukraine war. I mean, if you think about where the United States is at this point in time, we're facing a never-ending war in Ukraine, and we're facing a never-ending war in Gaza. And this is not good from the point of view of the American national interest. So I think that what you see uh, the Biden administration maneuvering to do vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine is try to shut that one down. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of evidence that... Uh, we have made it clear to Ukraine that they're not going to get a lot more weaponry uh, and that they better start thinking about negotiating some sort of settlement, a real ceasefire, to go back to our discussion of that lexicon before. And uh, so I, I would think that we're going to push hard for a meaningful ceasefire. 
my view, Judge, for what it's worth, is that the Russians are not going to buy that, that the Russians are not going to stop until they conquer a lot more territory in Ukraine, because the Russians understand that the Americans and the Ukrainians will never give up in terms of pushing the Russians out of Ukraine. It may take us a long time, but we will continue to push, 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 even after we get a ceasefire. This is why it'll be a frozen conflict. Well, if you're the Russians and you think the Americans are going to be at your throat forever and ever, and you think the Ukrainians will be with them, you have a vested interest in taking more of Ukraine than you now control and right. making sure that you turn Ukraine into a truly dysfunctional rump state. I keep thinking of that awful uh, trip that Boris Johnson took to uh, dissuade President uh, Zelensky from an agreement that he could have had, which wouldn't have shed a drop of blood, a far better agreement than anything he's going to get now. It, it's shocking how foolish uh, the United States and Britain have been in terms of their policy uh, on Ukraine and Russia. Just, just amazing. I mean, if you go back to December 17th, 2021, this is about three months uh, actually two months before the uh, war starts, January, right. February 24th, 2022. The Russians were working overtime to get some sort of diplomatic settlement. This is before the war. And right. we wouldn't cut them any slack. We showed remarkably little interest in trying to shut this down, despite the fact we were running around saying a war was coming. Right Then the war breaks out, and you have these peace negotiations that start, uh, involving uh, the Israelis and involving the Turks and others. And it looks like it's going to succeed. You're going to be able to shut the war down. And Zelensky's in favor of this and Putin's in favor of this. And what do we do? We meaning the United States. And we Britain. disrupt it. <laughs> we disrupt it. This is like crazy. And then later that year, General Milley, this is after the Ukrainians have won two major tactical victories, one in Kharkiv and the other in Kherson, right? General Milley, who smartly recognizes that this is the high watermark, says, let's cut a deal. Let's see if we can end this war now. And right. the Biden administration sends them to the woodshed and tells them in no uncertain terms that we're not going to cut a deal now. And here we are today, right, with Ukraine in desperate straits and the Russians, you know, in the driver's seat. Professor Mirshammer, always a pleasure, my dear friend. Thank you for analysis, your, your astute analysis on both of these uh, hotbed issues and locations. I hope you can come back again next week because there will be more events for us to talk about. I'm sad to say that's true. Thank you, yeah. Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thanks for joining us. At uh, 5 o'clock Eastern today, the inimitable Max Blumenthal here on Judging Freedom. Judge Napolitano for Judging Freedom.